Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in again. I really appreciate all the support I've been getting, and I love that you guys come back to watch my videos, so thanks so much for coming back and taking a look. The mobs that we're going to be covering today is a bit different than the previous two, and I probably won't do another like him, but I just wanted to get the top three done. Honestly, it was a bit hard to get through this one. He's very different from what I want to be doing and the type of people that I I want to be covering, but I feel like I had to do an episode of him or it just wouldn't be right. So let's go ahead and get started, and you'll understand what I'm talking about in just a minute. Alphonse Gabriel Capone was born on January 17th, 1899. His parents immigrated from Italy in 1893. His father, Gabriel, was a barber and his mother, Teresa, was a seamstress, which is a little surprising. That's the first mother that I've seen that has a job. I assumed that women in this time period just didn't work and they were more homemakers, but Teresa Capone seems to break that mold. They were both born in Angri, a commune outside of Naples in the province of Salerno. His parents had nine children altogether. They settled in Park Slope, Brooklyn when Al was 11 years old. Al, unlike a lot of other mobsters, doesn't seem like he was born for this life. His family sent him to a very strict parochial Catholic school, and they tried to raise their family right. They participated in church events, they did fundraisers, they fed the poor. He definitely wasn't born for the criminal life. He did start to show problems early on, though. He showed a lot of promise in school. He had very good grades, and those were a lot harder to achieve than now, but it didn't last long. He had a lot of trouble with authority and following rules, and he got expelled from school at 14 years old after he assaulted a female teacher. He worked at a candy shop, he worked at a book bindery, at a bowling alley, so just the odd jobs around the neighborhood to get him through. And then he began a career in semi-professional baseball in 1916. He started playing for the semi-pro team St. Michael's, which was a team in Brooklyn. He played first base and was a pitcher. His older brother, Ralph, played as well, and him and Ralph were pretty close for their whole lives. In 1918, the brothers formed the Al Capone Stars, and that was just another semi-pro baseball team. The team was regularly making headlines in Brooklyn newspapers, but the problem was that the newspapers, they often referred to Capone as Capone or Carpony, and that led to his involvement in baseball remaining a secret for a really long time. Up until just recently, people never had any idea that he was in semi-pro baseball. In 1918, his girlfriend, May, got pregnant, and he gave up baseball. And on December 4th, 1918, his son, Albert Francis Sonny Capone, was born. Al began working for Frankie Yale's Harvard Inn. This bar and brothel in Coney Island would be Capone's first employment under a criminal. So he had always lived in Brooklyn. Obviously, there was mafia guys on the streets. He had had associations. But this was the first job he would take that was under a criminal. Frankie Yale was one of Brooklyn's largest bootleggers during Prohibition. Obviously, this is before Prohibition. So at the time, he was just 
a criminal. And he took Capone under his wing when he was 18 years old and started working there. He worked at the Harvard Inn and he did everything between bouncing, bartending, washing dishes, waiting tables, just every job that you could do at a restaurant he did. Al started to build a reputation here. It was said that the patrons loved him, but that his eyes could bear a kindly, humorous glint or flash black ferocity at a moment's notice. Although he was really fun-loving and he often took turns on the dance floor, he could quickly switch to violent. But it seemed like that trait was useful because there was a lot of fights that ended up deadly at this cheap bar tavern. Four days after his son's birth, Capone was working at the Harvard Inn. The Harvard Inn was located on Union Street and 4th Avenue in Coney Island. A local gangster, Frank Galluccio, and his sister Lena had come to the bar to get food and drinks. Frank was about 5'6", 148 pounds, and Capone was about 200 pounds at the time, and he was stocky. He didn't gain the weight and get fat until later when he moved to Chicago, apparently. So at the time, he's stocky, he's muscly. He's a lot bigger than Galluccio. And Capone was enchanted by Galluccio's sister, Lena. He couldn't stay away from her. He was waiting tables, and he continually stopped to flirt with Lena, but she wasn't interested whatsoever. This lasted the entire night he was pestering her, harassing her, using pickup lines, constantly coming over, asking her out. And eventually Lena had asked her brother Frank to nicely ask Capone to stop. Galluccio, by this time, is drunk as a skunk, and he's gonna do just that. But Capone's next remark led to absolute violence and mayhem. Capone made his way to the table one more time, and he said to Lena, loud enough that everybody could hear, You got a nice honey, and I mean that as a compliment, believe me. Now, Frank was an Italian gangster that was well-known in Brooklyn. The ultimate disrespect to an Italian gangster is to insult their family. And now, not only had he insulted his sister, but everybody around heard, including the stranger sitting at the next table, everybody heard Capone insult Galluccio's sister. Galluccio couldn't just let that slide. He demanded that Al apologize, and Al came at Frank with a demeanor that suggested that he didn't want to fight. But the two exchanged words and Frank threw a punch. Capone's infamous rage kicked in and he attacked Frank. And at this point, Frank gets scared because remember, Frank's a lot smaller than Capone and probably can't fight as well. Capone was a bit of a scrapper. So Frank gets scared and now, now he's defending his life. It switched from throwing a few punches to I might die tonight. So now Frank pulls out a pocket knife Frank took his pocket knife and went for Capone's throat. He slashed him three times, leaving deep gashes in the left side of Capone's face and giving him a nickname that he's going to carry for the rest of his life, and that would be Scarface. Capone was rushed to Coney Island Hospital and received 30 stitches, but now his face was marked for the rest of his life. He was going to go through life forever with these scars, and now Capone is out for blood. He is not just going to take that sitting down. Now, Galluccio starts getting word from friends that some cut-up bruiser is looking for him on the streets, but Galluccio's not really too scared about it because I'm assuming he knows who the cut-up bruiser is, and Galluccio has its own status at this point. He's a member of what would one day become the Genovese family, 
I can't really figure out where he stood. I just see that he was in the Genovese family, but obviously it didn't exist yet. So I don't know where he was at this time. I've looked. He was involved in the mafia somehow. So he wasn't too concerned about the cut up bruiser that he keeps hearing about on the streets. He has his own connections and he'll be fine. But even though he has his own connections, he's pretty low level. He's not high up in the family that he's in. And now he starts to hear that higher up members of Yale's crew are starting to show up at the places that he shows up at a lot. So now he has high level mafia members coming after him. And now he gets scared and he goes to his friend Albert Altirio for help. Alterio brought Galuccio to see Joe Massaria and Lucky Luciano to discuss the problem. And once they were there, both bosses decided that there needed to be a sit-down. They needed to discuss this issue. There's a lot of members involved. They don't want unnecessary bloodshed. So there has to be some kind of meeting. So they set up a meeting at the Harvard Inn. And the meeting's going to be between Luciano, Massaria, Yale, Galuccio, and Capone. At this meeting, they decreed that there's going to be no more bloodshed on either side. And they agreed that Capone, he was wrong. They agreed that nobody should insult another man in front of his own family and get away with it. So Capone making that comment to Galuccio's sister puts Capone in the wrong here. But they do order Galuccio to apologize to Capone because the cuts on Capone's face are pretty bad. You could tell that they're going to be scars. And they order Capone to stop seeking revenge against Galuccio. Galuccio says that he did apologize profusely, especially after he saw the cuts on Capone's face. He said he was really sorry for what he did. Later on, Al would go and apologize to Coluccio. He would admit that he was wrong when he insulted his sister, and he admitted that especially he was wrong because he was in public and other people heard what he had said. Capone actually followed those rules that was given in that meeting for the rest of his life. Even after he rose to power, he never went after Coluccio and tried to get revenge for the scars that he got on his face. He even went as far as hiring Galuccio as a bodyguard for whenever he came to New York. And he paid him a pretty high salary. He gave him $100 a week, which was extremely high at the time. Although Capone's scars contributed to his tough guy persona, he hated the scars. He regularly applied baby powder to diminish the appearance of the scars, but it didn't really work too well. He's seen in a lot of photographs becoming angry when he sees that the photographer is taking pictures from his left side and when he knows the scars will get captured in the photos. And there's even a lot of pictures where he physically covers up the scars so that they won't be captured in the photos that the media is taking. He hated his nickname Scarface, even though it did contribute to his ruthless gangster reputation that he had wanted to build, he still hated the nickname. And he told the media that he got the scars from a German machine gunner in the trenches of World War One. But he actually didn't serve in World War One or ever serve in the military at all. But they just didn't have the means to prove so at the time. So nobody ever called him out on it. He has another brother, James, who claims that he was in the army as well. He said that he was a sharpshooter in the army and served during World War I as a lieutenant. He later became a cop and a prohibition agent, and he changed his name to Richard Hart. But it's even questionable that he served. He never actually was able to provide physical proof that he ever served. So it's possible that both Capone boys are just lying about their service. Up until this point, Capone had been in multiple
little gangs. He joined his first gang at the age of 15 or 16 years old. He was a part of the South Brooklyn Rippers. Soon after that, he was initiated into the 40 Thieves Jr., a junior version of the Five Points Gang. After that, he joined the Bowery Boys, the Brooklyn Rippers, and then the Five Points Gang. At the age of 18, he married his son's mother, May Josephine Coughlin, on December 30th, 1918. They were both under the age of 21, and they needed written permission to get married, which they got. Their their family supported the relationship, so they got the signatures, and they got married. Married. In 1919, James Big Jim Colosimo hired Johnny Torrio to work for him. Big Jim was a crime boss, and Johnny Torrio was working for him. He was working as his enforcer. Torrio invited Capone to join the operation, so he left New York and headed for Chicago to be a bouncer at a brothel. This brothel is where Capone contracted syphilis, and that's ultimately what took him down in the end. He never went to seek treatment for the disease, and that would come back to haunt him later. In 1923, Capone and May purchased a house in Park Manor, Chicago for $5,500. On May 11th, 1920, Calissimo was murdered. Capone is suspected of being involved in the murder, and Torrio the man who had initially invited Capone to Chicago, took over the empire. Once Torrio took over what was essentially a mafia family, the biggest in Chicago, Capone was his right-hand man, what would be a modern-day consigliere. A lot of the business was done by purchasing alcohol from bootleggers in Canada, which if you've seen the movie The Untouchables, it's a movie from 1987, I believe. It's very slow moving. I didn't enjoy it, but if you're a little older, maybe you saw it, maybe you enjoyed it. But when they're staking out the exchange on the bridge between Canada and America, that's what's going on here. But even though Capone did a lot of business there, one of Capone's most famous lines is, I don't even know what street Canada is on. In January of 1925, Torrio was shot several times. Capone had been attacked 12 days earlier, but he had escaped without harm. Torrio wasn't killed, but he left his position as the boss of the Chicago outfit, and he passed the reins to Capone, and he was only 26 years old. He was pretty young to be taking control of a mafia family. Even though the outfit was running essentially a mafia family, it wasn't one. And that means that it didn't operate under the same rules that the mafia families abided by. And this is why I say Capone is a lot different than the former two that I had gone over. I had gone over Lucky Luciano and John Gotti. Capone is a whole different monster. He regularly had establishments blown up when they didn't purchase alcohol from him. And that's something we know that the mafia doesn't condone. As many as a hundred innocent bystanders got hurt or killed. And that's the exact reason that the American mafia banned this practice as far back as it existed. I personally enjoy doing research and looking into mafia gangsters. Capone really isn't one, but he's one of the top three, so we'll persevere. We can see an extreme difference in the way that the mafia exists and the way that the crime racket that Capone was running in Chicago exists, and even more in Capone's business associates. He did a lot of business with the local African Americans. He had them help him with jobs and business. And since we know at that time that Luciano was fighting Masseria for the right to do the same, it's obvious that Capone didn't want to be construed as being a part of the mafia, even though 
he's often regarded now as being a member of it. You look back and you you think of Al Capone, you think of the mafia. Capone really wasn't in the mafia or run his business the way the mafia ran theirs. While the most successful and long-lasting gangsters, they usually fly under the radar, Capone was all too happy to wear expensive suits, he wore flashy jewelry, he spent a copious amount of money on fine dining, he spent a lot of money on houses and hotel suites, and he spent a lot of time with photographers and journalists, and even got pretty involved in politics and influenced entire council elections. There was a war brewing in Chicago with the Northside gang. They had tortured and killed Capone's driver, they'd done drive-bys, they killed his friend that owned the Hawthorne restaurant. And they continually attacked Capone's outfit. The war started when Torrio, he normally settled disputes over turf in Chicago, and he didn't get involved in a turf war between the Northside Gang and the Jenna Brothers. And the Jenna brothers were allies to Torrio, so when he didn't get involved, it kind of made tensions rise. And then when he did get involved, he had the leader of the Northside gang, Obanian, murdered. And that led to Jaime Weiss leading the gang with Vincent Drucci and Bugs Moran as the seconds in command. Weiss was close friends with Obanian, and he made it a mission to avenge his murder. This is how Torrio got shot. Uh, and it led to continuous fighting with Capone's outfit and the North Side Gang. Capone's family was 100% Italian. His parents immigrated from Italy, but he wasn't Sicilian. But he started to get involved in Sicilian affairs. He helped Antonio Lombardo take the position as head of the Union Siciliana, a Sicilian-American benevolent society, and it seems like leading this benevolent society somehow represented the mob boss of Chicago. Joe Aiello, a well-known mafioso, he was upset that Capone got involved in the affairs of the Union Siciliana, especially when he wasn't Sicilian. He he really wanted the position leading the society, and it started a war with Aiello. So Aiello Lombardo, who was currently running it, and Capone all went to war. So Aiello started building business and personal relationships with well-known enemies of the two, and made multiple attempts on each of their lives. He continually hired hitmen, and even tried to recruit the chef at Capone's favorite restaurant to poison him. But the chef actually exposed the offer to Capone and Capone had Aiello's bakery destroyed. When his men shot 200 bullets into Aiello's store, Aiello's brother was injured and Aiello continued to put a bounty on Capone and Lombardo's head. At one point, the bounty was up to $50,000, which would be about $752,000 at today's rate. But everybody that sought to collect the bounty kept turning up dead. Even close friends of Capone's attempted to collect the bounty because it was so much money. In November of 1927, Aiello had set up drive-bys of Lombardo's home and business, but the cops got involved and arrested one of the gunmen, and the gunmen ratted out Aiello. Aiello was arrested and brought to the police station, and Capone sent 23 gunmen to wait for his release, and they weren't discreet about it. They went armed to a police station and stood outside, making it clear that they were planning on killing him as soon as he walked out of the police station. 
action. So because this is going on, photographers swarm to the precinct to get live action shots of Aiello being murdered because it was obvious what was going to happen. Three of Capone's gunmen got themselves arrested on purpose so that they could be put in the cell next to Aiello and let him know what was going on because remember Aiello got arrested so he's in a cell. He has no idea that these 23 men are outside so these three men got themselves arrested so they could let Aiello know. Aiello pled for mercy and he was given 15 days to sort out his affairs and leave the city. He actually did leave and he left with some of his brothers and he headed to New Jersey. He didn't stop there though. Aiello teamed up with Bugs Moran, one of the second-in-command who had recently taken control of the Northside gang. He had two of Moran's men, Frank and Peter Gusenberg, murder Lombardo on a busy Chicago street on September 7th, 1928. Nobody was ever arrested for the murder. And he continued to seek the position of the head of the Union Siciliana. After Lombardo was killed, Pascalino Lollardo was elevated to the spot he was now running the society, which means he's running the Chicago Mafia. This still didn't stop Aiello. And he had Lollardo murdered as well. Apparently, Aiello was mad that he wasn't given the position and he still wanted it. So when he was scheduled to go to a mob meeting at the Statler Hotel in Cleveland, where the leadership was supposed to be discussed, he told the cops about it. And 23 mob figures, including Joe Perfossi and Joseph Magliocco, were arrested. Now, as far as Capone, I'm not really a big fan of Capone. I, I kind of hate him. I do. And there's a few reasons for that. The main one being that he killed a lot of innocent people for no reason. And that's something that the real mafia stands pretty firmly against. They don't do that. They don't kill innocent people. And it's one of the reasons that the public mostly respects the mafia, regardless of their criminal enterprises, regardless of the violence that they commit within the families, within the mafia, the public respects them because they don't kill innocent people. And Capone does. Capone has no qualms about killing innocent people. He doesn't care about killing innocent men, women, children, completely unrelated to the criminal matters or completely unrelated to him. And one of the places that we see those senseless killings is in regard to his political affiliations. One of the politicians that he threw his support behind was William Hale Thompson. Thompson was running for mayor of Chicago and he promised to reopen illegal saloons. So obviously, since Capone is involved in prohibition, he's a bootlegger, he's selling alcohol, he supports Thompson now. And he even made a $250,000 donation to his campaign, which is a lot, a lot, a lot of money at the time. But Thompson had rivals. Thompson's running for mayor, so obviously there's going to be rivals, there's going to be other people that want to become mayor. And one of his rivals was Joe Esposito. Joe Esposito was killed in front of his house in a drive-by shooting. I think we all can assume who was responsible for that. In areas that Thompson was expected to lose on primary day, I think they called it the pineapple primary. Voting booths were bombed and it led to at least 15 people, innocent people that were just voting to be killed and it terrified people in Chicago into not voting in the primary at all. The bombings on the Pineapple primary were carried out by one of Capone's soldiers, James Belcastro who was accused of the murder of Octavius Granity, an African-American lawyer who challenged 
Thompson's for the African-American vote. So Thompson had almost all the African-American votes. This person was threatening to take it away, and the African-Americans were throwing their votes behind Octavius Granity. So obviously something's going to happen. He was chased through the streets of Chicago by cars of gunmen before being shot dead, and Bel Castro was charged with this murder along with four police officers. But the charges were dropped when it was revealed who they were working for, that they were all working for Capone, and all of the witnesses recanted their statements. He's also connected to the murder of the assistant state attorney William McSwiggan and investigator Ben Newmark. So if you've heard about Al Capone, most likely you've heard about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. It's one of the biggest things associated with Capone. The infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre was carried out in answer to a shipment of alcohol that was coming in from Canada being hijacked in Illinois. It occurred on the morning of February 14th, 1929. Capone was in Florida at the time. He was never officially tied to the crime, but it was seemingly obvious to everybody that it was his doing. The massacre was carried out against the Northside gang, and only one member survived the attack, Bugs Moran, and that was because he didn't attend. Weiss and Vincent Drucci had actually actually died well before this in the wars between Capone and the Northside gang, so they weren't involved. They were previously fighting over Obanian's murder. Capone's men had rented an apartment across the street from the Northside gang's center of operations, and what everybody was under the assumption of was that his men had dressed up as cops and carried out a fake raid. That they lined up seven people as if they were going to frisk them, and opened up machine gun fire, and killed them all. Once this happened, the public turned against Capone. He tried to clean up his image by opening a soup kitchen during the Great Depression, but the damage was done. One of the major fallouts of the public turning against him was that Thompson, who was very, very publicly backed by Capone, lost the mayoral election to Anton J. Cernak. So Cernak was now the new mayor of Chicago. Nobody was ever prosecuted for the slaughter. So up until pretty recently, I would say within the last few years, it didn't come out that more than likely Capone actually didn't order this hit. He probably wasn't involved at all. At the time, Hoover was the president-elect, and he, as well as the FBI team that was investigating the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and was investigating Capone, it looks like they probably knew this, but they refused to acknowledge that he was innocent. But it looks like more than likely they knew that he didn't do it, that he had nothing to do with it, and they just never confirmed or denied. Those that were killed at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre included Johnny May, a mechanic that was hired by Bugs and was completely unrelated to gang activity. He had a wife and seven children and a dog named Highball, and the dog was actually at the shop the morning of the massacre. He was tied to the axle of the truck. He was in greasy coveralls and was working under a truck when the attack started, and he was lined up with the other six criminals and murdered. Frank and Peter Gusenberg, the brothers who had murdered Lombardo in 1928, were there. James Clark, who was also known as Albert Kachelik, who was a convicted armed robber and a reputed killer. Adam Heyer, aka Frank Snyder, an accountant and embezzler. 
was there. Albert Weinshank, a nightclub owner and a newly appointed official of the Central Cleaners and Dyers Association. And Reinhardt H. Swimmer, an optometrist who was an associate of the gang, but mostly for optics. He wanted bragging rights of saying, you know, I run with a tough crowd. But he really, he wasn't involved. He was kind of an innocent, you know. He just wanted to look tough by having tough friends. And he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The only indication to neighbors that the machine gun fire that they heard, everybody thought it was a backfiring car engine. And you got to think this is a shop. This is a mechanic shop. So a backfiring car engine is probably something that they hear pretty often. But the only indication that that's not what this was was the terrified howls heard by Highball. He was left tied to the axle of the truck while his owner was slain a few feet away. So he continued to howl until a neighbor came to check on what was going on, and they stumbled on the bloody scene. Frank Gusenberg was still alive, but he died at the hospital later that day. While the murder took place, Capone actually sat for an interview with a Brooklyn prosecutor, Louis Goldstein. He was investigating the murder of Capone's old friend and mentor, Frankie Yale. It looks like Capone was probably responsible for that as well. Louis Goldstein lured Capone to the interview without a lawyer. He promised he was only going to interrogate him about Yale's murder, and Capone was pretty confident that he wouldn't be able to find any evidence, so he showed up without a lawyer. But once the interview started, the real questions of his personal finances began. And this is where Capone learns that the feds are starting to look into his taxes. And this had never been done before. After the massacre, the newspapers printed the most graphic pictures of a crime scene in American media history. And that was enough to earn Capone a new nickname, Public Enemy Number 1. While Gusenberg died shortly after he got to the hospital, he was alive when the detectives arrived at the scene. He told police that it was the cops that carried out the attack because the men that showed up were in a police uniform. While the police initially dismissed this as either a lie or an imposter, five days later they announced that they had new evidence to support Gusenberg's claim and that they did believe it was police. One of the main things that made police initially dismiss Capone was that all the people in the garage had been murdered. All of them. This turned out to be a huge piece of the puzzle, since both Johnny May and the optometrist Reinhard Schwimmer, they weren't part of the gang. And most gangs retaliating over a business deal gone wrong or a hijacking of their product, they're not going to kill two random people who are innocent, not because they're good people and they want to spare people, but more because that's just more risk to kill more people, especially when the public sees innocents being killed, they get more angry. If you see in the newspaper that a gangster was killed, you kind of tend to overlook it. But when you see a man with a wife and seven children was killed, you get upset. So normally, gangsters aren't going to do that. So it didn't make sense why these two men were killed. That ends, the shooters didn't steal anything at the shop. And they didn't empty the pockets of the victims, even though the victims had thousands of dollars in their pockets. It showed a serious lack of precision. It showed that the shooter was pretty much just angry. It was a lot more than just money. It was a lot more than just a business deal something personal happened. Although a whole bunch of theories 
turned up. There was a lot of motives that were considered. There was a lot of shooters that were considered. The case remained cold. There was no real concrete evidence. There was nothing. They didn't even have like a lead suspect. But Capone had been tried in the court of public opinion, honestly. His reputation had been destroyed. But the things that were happening weren't making sense. A few events that transpired that had never led anywhere and nobody could figure out why Capone wasn't being arrested. It was so obvious to the public that Capone did it. Everyone saw this horrible massacre that they saw pictures of on the front page of the newspaper and they hated Capone and they wanted him arrested and it didn't make sense to anybody why he wasn't being arrested. But then they got their first break on December 14, 1920. Fred the Killer Burke, a well-known bank robber and hired gun, as well as an associate of Capone's, hit another car in Michigan and ran away. When a police officer approached him, Burke murdered the policeman. The police saw this happen, I'm guessing on dash cam or something. They knew it was him. So they show up at Burke's house. And they didn't find him, he wasn't there, but they did find enough guns, ammo, and bombs to stock a small army. Within those guns, they found the weapons used to complete the St. Valentine's Day massacre, as well as the murder of Frankie Yale. Burke went to jail for the rest of his life for the murder of the police officer, but he wasn't even questioned about the other crimes. He died in jail nine years later without even ever answering one question about the St. Valentine's Day massacre or the murder of Frankie Yale. Or if he did answer questions, it wasn't made public, and everybody was left scratching their head. Four years after that, Byron Bolton, a bank robber, was arrested. Now, when you're arrested and you're given a lot of time, something that some people do is they think of every crime that they know about, and they they try to reduce their sentence by giving information to the police, and that, in turn, sometimes police will take some time off of their sentence if they do that. So he tells feds that he knows who committed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. He named Burke and four other people related to Capone's operation, and he claimed that he was there as a lookout. He said that Capone hired them to kill Bugs Moran. His story made national headlines, and Capone was still not arrested, and everybody was upset that he wasn't getting arrested. Everybody was confused. Why aren't they arresting him? It just makes no sense to anybody. There were a lot of mysteries that weren't ever answered to the public. Why were criminals at the garage so early in the morning? It's not even a hangout for the group. What were they doing there? I think it was like 5.30 a.m. Why were they dressed so nicely? So if you see the pictures of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, they're in suits. They have ties on. One of them even has a corsage on. Why are they dressed so nice? Why was the car seen fleeing the scene almost certainly an actual police vehicle? Where would Capone get his hands on a legitimate police car? Why was there a witness at the scene that recounts seeing a driver with a finger missing? Who in Capone's group of friends is missing a finger? Why, if Bugs Moran was the person that they were going after, was Moran not being pursued by Capone? Capone knows where Moran lives. He could just have him attacked at home. He could have his house burned down. We've already established that Capone doesn't care about killing innocent people. He could just, you know, blow out the house with his wife and kids there. But he didn't. Moran was still walking around, not a care in the world. 
And why were those two innocent men killed? Nothing was adding up for the public. So this was like a lot of other cases is that it's not making sense to the public because the public doesn't know everything. The FBI isn't releasing all of the information to the public. So recently, again, within the last few years, old FBI archive documents were released for the first time. In the year 2021, we find out about a lot of stuff that they didn't know at the time is that the FBI, they have to release their archive documents after a certain amount of time. So let's say every 40 years. If something is 40 years old, it has to be released to the public under the Freedom of Information Act, I believe. So recently, within the last few years, old FBI archive documents, they were released for the first time. They reveal a letter that was written to John Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI at the time. It was written by Frank T. Farrell, and Farrell was just another man that lived in Chicago. But he said that he was doing undercover work. In the letter, he wrote the most plausible information that could explain what actually happened. And now in today's day and age, it explains so much. And it would have explained everything to everybody back then, but it was never made public. A man named William Davern Jr. was a former firefighter and was the son of William Davern, a police sergeant in Chicago. He was at a bar in November of 1928, and he was shot in the stomach by a stray bullet during a bar fight. He was transported to the hospital and he stayed there for a month and then he succumbed to his injuries and he died in the hospital from the gunshot wound. Devon didn't ever disclose the identity of the shooter to police, but he did tell his cousin, William White. William White was a vicious criminal in Chicago and he routinely robbed banks and pulled off criminal jobs. He wasn't a good person. And the man that Devon named as his shooter Gusenberg. White happened to know the Gusenberg brothers. They had pulled off an $80,000 heist of the International Harvester Factory in 1926 together. In that robbery, eight men had pulled it off and one of them ratted. White had two of his friends disguised as police officers go to the person who had given the police information and kill him in his sleep, which is very similar to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre where they were dressed up as police officers. Another interesting piece of information is that White was missing two fingers on his right hand from an old injury. A letter that Farrell wrote alleges that White told the Gusenbergs that he needed help with another factory job, which would explain why the men were at the shop that early in the morning. They were getting ready for the robbery. And it would make a lot of sense that they were dressed so nicely. This is just the dress code for a job back then. It makes sense that the witness saw somebody that was missing a finger in the driver's seat, which initially was dismissed as just sometimes witnesses say things or see things that when your adrenaline gets pumping, you see you see things, you, you you say things that some things just get dismissed. White is missing two fingers. This makes a lot of sense. And he could get police uniforms and a police vehicle from his uncle. Davern's father could have given him equipment, you know, uniforms, weapons, all of this stuff to avenge his son's death. It would explain a lot. It would explain why the witness saw a driver with a missing finger. It would explain why Moran was never pursued and wasn't killed during the massacre, but wasn't pursued afterwards either. Because if you think that Capone carried out the massacre, 
Why didn't he finish the job when Moran wasn't killed that day? And it would explain why innocent people were killed. This wasn't about a job or business or a hijacking. This was about revenge. This was about avenging a family member. There's a lot of anger in that. It would also explain why nobody was ever arrested. If they arrest White, what's the first thing you're going to ask? Was Davern, the sergeant at the police station, involved? Did the other police officers help cover it up, and police are probably less likely to pursue it because it's in revenge for a police officer's son being murdered. Police stick together, and honestly, it's understandable. If you hear that a co-worker of yours has their son murdered, it happens all the time. Whether it's right or wrong is a different discussion, but it does happen all the time that things are just brushed under the rug. Another thing is that White spent many years in the 1930s as a police informant. It says that that he was an informant for the FBI's protection, but was it actually in exchange for not being tried for the massacre? Or did the police brush the knowledge under the rug because he was an informant and they enjoyed Capone's reputation being destroyed in the public? Even though the letter was written after White had already been killed, White was killed because he was an informant and people found out and they went and killed him. It's likely that police had these answers all along. The only thing it doesn't explain is why Capone's soldier had the weapons at his house that were used for the murder. That could be explained by police dropping it there. They know that this is an associate of Capone's. They know that it will implicate Capone, but not strong enough that it really could ever be brought to trial. Or it could be that Capone was responsible, but it looks like once we're looking at all of the evidence now, it looks like Capone more than likely didn't do it. But to me, it's kind of funny. It's funny that Capone was taken down by the one crime he didn't commit. The public was fine with forgiving him for the murder of innocent people at polling booths. They were fine forgiving him for bombing pubs while innocent people drank inside and walked outside. For killing politicians and federal investigators and anybody who stood in his way. But the one thing that wrecked his reputation in the public image and eventually led to his jail sentence was the one thing he probably didn't do, the massacre. And I enjoy that irony. After the massacre, the Northside gang ceased to exist. Moran was the only living member, so the threat was extinguished. But the fight with Aiello continued. Aiello was able to convince three of Capone's men, Albert Anselmi, John Scalise, and Joseph Juenta, to kill Capone and take over the syndicate. Capone beat them to death with a baseball bat, which is one of his most memorable actions, and was also a scene featured in The Untouchables, and then he had his bodyguard shoot them for good measure. When Capone learned that Aiello was behind the plot, he had Aiello killed by two snipers who were set up across the street from his apartment in Chicago. He had promised to vacate, but it had been two, three years by this point, so he came back but snipers with a submachine gun were posted across the street on roofs and took him out. Because of the massacre, the publisher of the Chicago Daily News, who was Walter A. Strong at the time, he was friends with President Herbert Hoover, and he had asked him for a federal intervention 
to help with the severe crime issue in Chicago. They had a secret meeting, and in the meeting, Strong was saying that Chicago is in the hands of the gangsters. The police and magistrates are completely under their control. Federal government is the only force by which the city's ability to govern itself could be restored. Hoover says that he immediately directed all of the federal agencies to concentrate upon Capone and his allies and clean up this issue. Once Hoover directed all resources to solving this problem, the Treasury and Justice Departments pooled their resources to arrest Capone for income tax evasion. Elliot Ness, an agent of the Prohibition Bureau, led the investigation and his group was dubbed the Untouchables by the Chicago Daily News because they were the only law enforcement that was going after Capone, unable to be corrupted, they were unable to be bribed, and they were unable to be threatened into complacency. Capone was arrested in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on May 16, 1929 for carrying a concealed weapon. At the time, the public was mad. They were outraged that Chicago hadn't thought of this strategy. Why hadn't Chicago arrested him for this? He always walks around with a gun. But he was sentenced to a year in prison in Philadelphia. When he got out in March of 1930, he visited Miami, and in April of 1930, he was arrested for vagrancy charges when the governor ordered sheriffs to run him out of the state. The governor did not want him there. He says that they refused him food and water and threatened to arrest his family if he didn't leave. When he made these claims, he was arrested and charged with perjury, but he was acquitted of these charges. He was arrested in Chicago in September for vagrancy, and then in February of 1931 for contempt of court for not showing up in court. He was sentenced to six months in jail, but he remained free while he appealed. Ralph Capone was tried for tax evasion in 1930 and was sentenced to three years in jail. On June 5, 1931, Capone was indicted on 22 counts of income tax evasion. This happened after negotiations between his lawyer and the IRS failed. He had never filed a tax return, but he admitted that he had $100,000 in revenue between 1928 and 1929, and he was willing to pay taxes on it. But these negotiations gave the government proof of income. And when the negotiations went south, which more than likely the government never was actually trying to negotiate with him, they were probably just trying to get evidence, they were probably just trying to get him to acknowledge that he had a lot of income. But once the negotiations went south, anything that was given in the negotiations was their proof and they were able to bring it to trial. Capone was charged and he was released on $50,000 bail, which at this time was $870,000 in today's money. Now remember, this is over the span of a few years, so the value of the dollar varied greatly. A week after he was indicted, Elliot Ness and his team seized and halted operations of breweries run by Capone, and this led to another indictment for 5,000 violations of the Volstead Act. Ness and his team did have to fight for these convictions and for what they were doing. Capone's men ceaselessly tried to bribe them 
but to no avail. Security measures were put in place around the breweries, and they were trained to spot detectives and not let them on the premises. The squad's phones were even tapped. A close friend of Ness's was brutally murdered, and that led to Ness calling Capone personally and telling him to look out his window while he paraded 11 of the vehicles that they had seized down his street. Capone's lawyers were able to negotiate a plea bargain with the prosecution, where he would serve two and a half years if he pled guilty. But when they went to present the plea bargain, the judge refused the terms of the plea deal. And now at this point, his lawyers hadn't put together a case. They were relying on the plea deal that the prosecution had agreed to. So now they only had about a week to put together an entire case. The violations of the Volstead Act were dropped, and he was tried just for the income tax evasion. They didn't they didn't try him for the 5,000 violations. Capone was found guilty, and he was sentenced to 11 years in prison. He was sent to Atlanta U.S. Penitentiary in May of 1932 at 33 years old, and there he was officially diagnosed with syphilis and gonorrhea. He was also in withdrawal from cocaine, and he had actually perforated his nasal septum from this addiction, so he was doing a lot of cocaine. He was transferred to Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary in August of 1934. While he was there, he was stabbed by another inmate, James Lucas, in 1936, but the injury wasn't that bad. He played the banjo in the Alcatraz prison band, which gave Sunday concerts to the entire prison. He didn't do well in prison. He was pretty infamous for having other people do his bidding. He had criminals that had done his work for him. So now that he was completely on his own in prison, he wasn't doing great. And then towards the end of his prison sentence, his health started to rapidly decline. He spent the last year of his sentence in a hospital wing. He was confused, he was disoriented, and he was diagnosed with neurosyphilis. He was paroled in 1939 due to his declining health and reduced mental capacities. Once he was released, he headed to Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland for treatment. One other hospital had actually refused him service because of who he was, but Union Memorial Hospital had welcomed him. They knew that regardless of who you are or what you've done, you're entitled to medical treatment. He donated a plant, some kind of tree, to that hospital for their hospitality. He really was thankful that they treated him so well. In 1942, uh, the medication penicillin was released. The neurosyphilis had already done a lot of damage to his brain, but the penicillin was able to cure the syphilis and slow the progression of the neurosyphilis. He went to live in Palm Island, Florida, and was found to have the mental capacity of a 12-year-old child. He had a stroke on January 21st, 1947, and later he contracted bronchopneumonia. He had a heart attack on January 22nd, and he died on January 25th. Al Capone has had numerous articles, books, and films portray him. The image of a mobster wearing a pinstripe suit and a fedora, that comes from photos of him. He's the pinnacle of a mobster, but he actually was never in the mafia. So again, Capone is very far off from who I enjoy researching I really didn't enjoy this one at all. I don't like Capone, and I apologize if that came off in this video. But thanks so much for sticking in there with me. I hope you come to see my next video and watch my previous videos, and I hope to see you soon.